One of the dominant metaphors that we're seeing in the Psalms is that of God as a rock, as a stronghold, as a fortress. And this Psalm, it, it in a real way, encapsulates what it means that God is the rock. When we say that God's a rock, we mean all of us need a, a solid place on which to put our feet, right? In a world that's always changing, um, we need somewhere that's stable, that's unchanging. And Jesus uses this metaphor in his own ministry in, in Matthew when he speaks about how there's, you know, this metaphor of these two men who build their house, one on the rock and one on the sand. And for us, we see so often in, in our lives personally, it might be, or in lives of others, that people are building their lives on sand. And we need to be very careful how we build, where we place our hope and our trust, and put it on the rock that doesn't move. So we're going to jump into this psalm. The outline here is, is pretty simple. The first two verses, we're going to see God, the rock. And then in verses 3 to 5, we're going to see a life built on sand. And then in verses 6 to 9, a life built on the rock. So there's a contrast happening here as David is writing the psalm where he contrasts those who trust in emptiness and build their life uh, metaphorically on sand and those who trust in God, the rock. So let's jump into the first section, verses 1 to 2, God, the rock. He says, To you, O Lord, I call. My rock be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So again, this initial metaphor is that we see in the first first uh, verse here is that God is a rock. It's not unique to this psalm, but it speaks of the security, stability, strength, and permanence of God. God is immovable. He is steadfast. And as he's calling to God as the rock, he's asking for God to hear him. Right? He repeats this: is be not deaf to me. And, he's, and he doesn't want God to be silent to him. So he's calling out to God to hear him and to speak to him. This is a really common way for pleas to start in the Psalms, right? This is a please pleading with God. And maybe he's been pleading with God for a while, but he's asking God to hear him. And I love how he's saying, essentially here, he's saying, if you are silent and if you don't hear me, then I'm doomed, Right? Without God hearing David and speaking to David, he has no hope. And again, this has been a, th- a theme that we've seen. We'll see more of it, but God's voice has power, and it's powerful when God hears us and acts on behalf of our requests. And so he's saying, if, if, I, if you don't hear me, I'm doomed. I'll become like those who go down to the pit. The pit he's speaking of here is, is death, right? That's what he's speaking of, going into the grave. And so he needs God to hear him and to speak to him. You know, we often take for granted that God speaks to us, and we take for granted that God hears us as well. We think this is just something that God is supposed to do. And so we don't take the time to think of how amazing that is. And you know you take it for granted if you fail to, on a daily basis, seek God in his word. If you have in your hands God's word where he gives us his full revelation that we need for everything for life and godliness, if you don't open this up, then you're taking for granted the amazing gift it is that God speaks to us, that he gives to us the knowledge we need, not just for how to live, but for how to have life in Jesus. And you know it's also true that you take this for granted if you don't speak to God in prayer. If you don't take real significant time 
to be with God, to speak to him, to let your needs be known to him because he loves to act on your behalf. So I ask you, does your life reflect that you take these gifts for granted? Or, or are you like David saying, God, I need you to speak to me. I need you to hear me. Without that relationship, without that communication, I have no hope. Without God hearing and speaking, we would have no hope. Verse 2, he says, Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. So again, there's lots of repetition in these first few verses, but you can see the, the desperation he has here. He's lifting up his hands. This is a, a gesture of, again, desperation. It's a gesture of prayer and supplication. We see this mentioned in other places in Scripture. One of the Psalms that mentions this is Psalm 141. It says, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So it's lifting up. You see the same kind of theme of desperation and need for God to, to listen to him. So lifting up the hands is sort of like reaching out for God's favor. It, it maybe indicates an expectation or anticipation that God's going to respond to this request and give you something that you need. So we see the posture of David, the psalmist, lifting up his hands to God. And then he, he says he's lifting his hands towards God's holy sanctuary. That word sanctuary is, is interesting because the word first appears in the scripture in reference to Solomon's temple. And, and we can see this in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 5. And it refers to the inner sanctuary, what we, we might call the holy of holies. So he's lifting his hands up toward the sanctuary of God, toward the, the tabernacle at this point in history. Later, it'll be the temple. But he's, he seems to be acknowledging exactly where his hope lies. He's not simply asking for something from God, but he wants God's presence itself. He wants to be near God. And so he's reaching out toward God, asking for that relationship, for God to be close to him. And it's so interesting because he understands what he actually needs, which is not what God provides, but God himself. You know, there's the, the old question that I remember being asked when I was in youth ministry, and I think it's worth asking ourselves often, which is, would you be happy in heaven if God wasn't there? If you could have all the benefits of heaven, the, the lack of suffering, all the joys that are, that are provided for you, all, the, all your needs taken care of, would you be happy there if God wasn't there? And I think David, what he's saying here is he wouldn't. He wants God himself. Now, of course, we know that without God being there, all the blessings of God would fade away as well. It's impossible to have one without the other, but David is putting the priority where it belongs, on God himself and on his presence. So verses 1 and 2 set up for the request, which starts in verse 3. So David is starting by acknowledging God as the rock and asking God to hear his, his request, his plea, and then he starts that plea in verse 3. And, and then David begins to contrast himself with the wicked. So the next section we see is verses 3 to 5, which shows us a life built on the sand. A life built on the sand. Look at verse 3. It says, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors, while evil is in their hearts. 
So David wants to contrast himself with the wicked. And it's interesting. So he's saying, God, don't drag me off. Don't let me be punished with the wicked. And the way that he defines what makes someone wicked, or as I'm you know, using the illustration of a life built on the sand, a life of emptiness and a life that is, is going to be destroyed, the definition he gives is interesting. He speaks of somebody who says one thing but intends something different. That, that here is his definition of someone who is wicked. It's somebody who has no integrity. They're intentionally seeking to harm somebody, but outwardly they're acting as if they only have the best intentions, right? Oh, I, 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 God be with you, bless you, friend. Well, inside they want to destroy, they want to undermine. I'm sure we've all known people like this. Maybe at times you have been a person like this, a person of deception, person who's wanted to destroy others out of bitterness or envy or something like that. But we see the same reality other places in the Psalms. Psalm 5.9 speaks of this as well. We've already seen this in our walk through the Psalms. Psalm 5.9 says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. So the same idea, right? They flatter. They have this veneer of kindness or of friendship, but inside they want to destroy. They want to bring people down into the grave. Psalm 55, 21, we also hear of this person who betrays the psalmist. And it says in Psalm 55, 21, he says, his speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So again, the on the outside, person is smooth, they're kind, they're soft, but inside they have hatred. They want to destroy. And so the, this is the kind of person who what you see is not what you get, right? They say one thing, they have, they have no integrity, they have no consistency of character. So they'll say one thing while deceiving and undermining and destroying. Now this language here might also indicate there was some sort of a covenant relationship between David and these individuals. They might have had some sort of a covenant and they, they've broken the covenant. And so now David is calling upon God to curse them, to bring the necessary curse for those who have forsaken the covenant. That's possible. So these people are building their lives on sand and the sand is their own deceptive acts. They think that by their deception, they can build something that will last, but, but God's gonna tear it down. Verse four, he says, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. So he's asking for the same thing over and over again, right? He's asking for God to show his justice, but the way that he wants him to show his justice is simply by giving these people what they deserve. Give, letting the, the punishment fit the crime. So he says, give to them according to their work. It could be translated literally, pay them according to what they have done. He wants them to get their wages. He wants them to get paid the wage that they have earned. He wants them to get what they deserve. He wants them to reap what they have sown. And there's nothing more terrifying than getting what you actually deserve. If we look at our lives and we're honest about our sin, about our failures, about our, the persistence of our sin very often, it is terrifying to think 
of what we would receive if God gave to us what we deserve, right? We all tend to, to live these lives um, kind of like we, you know, we, we run our social media pages, our Instagram or whatever, right? Where we post the highlights, we post all the great things that we've done, all the you know greatest vacations. We tend to think of ourselves very often in the same way spiritually. We have this highlight reel of the greatest things that we have done. And we're very good often at forgetting the bad things that we've done. And we like to play that, that story for ourselves, that reel for ourselves, and think that we're basically really good people and that we basically deserve God's love. But of course, if we were to be honest about our, our record, if we were to be honest about all the things that we have done, we would say in our best moments, we didn't serve God as he deserved. And in our worst moments, we did things that were shameful and deserving of God's punishment. So to get what you deserve is a terrifying thing. Romans 6.23 tells us what we deserve. It says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you got paid what you've earned, then you'd receive death. The fact that you are breathing right now is a reminder of God's grace to you. And if you get what you deserve in eternity, you'd receive eternal death, which is hell. But the good news of Jesus is in large part that we don't get what we deserve, right? That we don't receive the wages that we have earned because of our sins. And instead, we receive this good gift of the righteousness of Christ. That's the good news of Jesus. So, so David's asking God, going back to the psalm, to give them what they deserve, to pay their wages because of their sin. Verse 5, he says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, or the works of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. So these two phrases here, the works of the Lord and the work of his hands, the works of the Lord probably refers to, this is language that refers often to redemption or salvation. So God's acts that lead to the redemption of his people. So the works of the Lord probably refer to his salvation. The work of his hands, this is the language from Psalm 8, where it speaks of God's creation. Right? When I see the work of your hands, right? he's looking at the heavens in Psalm 8. And so he's, he's saying those who build their house on the sand are those who fundamentally fail to acknowledge that God is both creator and savior. They miss both of those realities. And of course, we could talk a while about how these are often linked. Right, Those who deny God's salvation and their need for salvation very often have a different creation myth. They make up a different story to explain how we got here. Their origin, they also believe, is different. These things are very linked in Scripture. And so if somebody fails to acknowledge God as both the creator, sustainer, right, provider, and also the Savior, Redeemer, then God is going to tear them down and build them up no more. It, it was, In other words, it was God the whole time who was building their lives. Even though they didn't acknowledge God and his creation and his providence, it was God who was building them up. He's the creator and the sustainer of life, and they've failed to acknowledge that, so the result is inevitable. God's going to tear down their life that he has created and built up. This language, when I was reading it, reminded me of the, the story of the, the conquest of Jericho, right? which is very familiar, of course, because maybe when you were a kid, if you were in church, you sang the, the Jericho song, right? Um, that Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. 
But at the end, after he tears the city down, he pronounces a curse on it that no one will ever rebuild the city, that it would come at the cost of your, your children, essentially. And this is a good reminder of what it's like to go against God, to build your life on the sand. The devastation that comes as a result of that is as if your life will be in eternally smoldering ruins. That's, that's kind of the picture, that it's torn down, it's there. It, it has the kind of resemblance of something that used to be great, but it will never be built up again. When you turn away from the favor, the grace of God, you can never flourish again in your lives. There comes that point of no return. So, so notice here, right? David is confident that God is going to do this, that this is how God works. He's going to repay them for what they have done. And he's asking that God won't do it to him. So David is contemplating that life that's built on the sand. And then he turns in the last section and he begins to praise God and to give thanks to him. So here we see at the, at the, the final three verses, or four verses, six to nine, a life built on the rock, a life built on the rock. Verse six, he says, blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. So now it's, it's changed, right? God has heard. And we see this often in the Psalms, right? This kind of change from one sort of desperate pleading to confidence that God has heard, that most likely he's praying this and he is kind of claiming this reality that he knows is going to come in the future. That's probably what's happening here. So he's saying, God has heard me. Verse 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. So he's trusting in God and that leads to exulting in God, being lifted up in your soul. He, he says, God is my strength. That speaks to God's empowering that God empowers him with what he needs. And he's my shield. That's God defending us. So he protects us from harm and he empowers us to move out in strength. He says, my heart trusts. This, this verb here speaks to a settled, ongoing reality for David, that he's continually trusting. It's an ongoing thing. David wasn't able to trust people. They broke covenant with him. They were deceptive to him. But God doesn't forsake his covenant. He always keeps his promises. His character is consistent. And so David turns and puts his feet back on the rock, which is God, right? He, he turns back to the rock that he knows he can build his life on. Verse eight, he says, the Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Because God is his rock, he finds his strength and his salvation in God. He says he's the saving refuge of his anointed, that we're anointed again. Um, this is why versions like the ESV are very helpful because they'll translate these words pretty consistently. So when you see that word anointed in the ESV, you can pretty much be sure that's the word Messiah, Mashiach in Hebrew. It's that, that word for the chosen one, the anointed one, right? In the New Testament, it'll be Christ. Now here, we know the anointed of of God at this time is David, right? And then, of course, the great Messiah will come from David down the road. That'll be Jesus Christ. But one thing that's interesting here is what, what's true for the people is true also for the leader and vice versa. So because God is the saving refuge of David and David stands for the rest of the people, he's going to strengthen and protect and save the people as well. So there's this relationship between 
the leader, and the people. It's very significant. And of course, we'll see that that motif, that idea brought to its fruition when Jesus dies for the sake of his people. He stands for the entirety of his people and rescues them. Verse 9, Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. I love this pairing at the end here of save and bless. And I love this because we see similar words um, used throughout you know, the, the Psalms, but there's always this this is kind of pairing here, right? So rescue them, save them, and bless them, make them whole. Uh, snatch them out of danger and place them into your shalom, your peace. Um, I love how the those ideas are often paired, that God not only removes the bad things or rescues us from the bad things, but he also brings to us every good thing that we could possibly need. And so here David is calling upon God to do those two things. And then it ends with, this picture of a shepherd carrying a sheep. I love how intimate it is at the very end here, this picture that we, you know, we've seen depicted in art so many times. Maybe it's cheesy to you, but it's such a, a powerful picture, this intimate picture of guarding and placing someone that you love or something that you love in the right location. And that's what God's going to do. He's got, David's asking him to show his tender love to protect and to provide for David and for his people. I love this. I love this, this psalm. And we have this God who is that kind of a rock to us. So for you, I would ask you, where are you building your life? What foundation are you planting yourself on? Are you like the wicked who are looking to deception, looking to their own sin to provide them some kind of a security, who think they can find joy and satisfaction in indulging sin? Or are you instead building your life on the rock who is God himself? Where are you building your life? You know, Jesus Christ is the only one who can guarantee to us access to God, who gives us this freedom to build our life on the rock. You know, Jesus is the only one who can stop us from receiving what we deserve. Just as David prayed in this prayer that he wouldn't be dragged off with the wicked, but that they would get paid their wages, um, we have someone that we can appeal to for the same thing. That we can say, God, don't let me get what I deserve. Don't let me die because of my sins. And so Jesus, he takes the punishment that we deserve and he gives to us what he deserves. He imputes to us his own righteousness. And therefore, we know that God always hears us. He not only speaks to us, but he hears us when we come to him. So this is a beautiful psalm, and it brings us directly to Jesus Christ himself. So build your life on the rock today.